A few weeks ago, we watched the Super Bowl. Um, I love Super Bowl. It's fun to watch not only for the game, but also because of the commercials. But there's this also this other part called the prop bets, you know, where people wager money on is the coin toss going to be heads or tails or what's the score after the first quarter or how many times are they going to say goat as it relates to Tom Brady being the greatest of all time. There's another prop bet that you can wager on, and that's if there will be a streaker during the Super Bowl. And this year, there was a streaker. And what makes this even more fascinating as, is that the guy bet on himself. He got a group of, I don't know, 15 so guys, and they said, hey, we're going to wager on this prop bet that there is going to be a streaker at the Super Bowl. And the reason he was so confident is because he was going to be the streaker absolutely brilliant. He goes to the game. He gets his buddy to cause a distraction. He hops on the field and sure enough, stops, plays, streaks, and he's going to be set to win $375,000. When I first heard this, I thought, it's brilliant. That's, I mean, it's genius. That's what you do, right? I mean, if you're going to wager, you wager on a for sure thing. The problem is, is a few days later, find out that he and his buddies actually broke the rules because you can't wager on yourself. You actually have to just wager on the prop, not that you would be the streaker. Crazy how it went down. It was still a fantastic idea. I I thought about that when I read the passage today because Jesus isn't wagering anything, but he is predicting something. I mean, that's what these wagers are. You're predicting heads or tails or streaker or not. And Jesus is predicting the future in our passage today. He, He is going to say that he's going to die and three days later, he's going to come back to life. He's gonna rise again. It's an amazing prophecy, prediction, if you will. We love this prediction stuff, don't we? Uh, whether it's gambling or whatever. I mean, we, we love the idea, especially around Jesus and his return about predicting it. For 2,000 years, people have been trying to figure out when Jesus is gonna come back. I mean, there was the... Millerites who followed a guy down, and uh, I guess it was October 22nd, 1844, tens of thousands of people thought Jesus was going to return because of how he interpreted scripture. Obviously, that day came and went, and Jesus hadn't come back. There are other predictions about when Jesus was going to return. I mean, there was the Hal Lindsey late great planet Earth book where he said somewhere between 70 and 1988 that that Jesus was going to come, and clearly that didn't happen. And then who can forget Edgar Wisenot, the guy who said, hey, there's 88 reasons why Jesus is going to return in 1988. That didn't happen, so he wrote a follow-up book called 89 Reasons Jesus is Going to Return in 1989. You can imagine that one didn't sell quite as many copies, nor did his subsequent books of why Jesus would come in 93, 94, and I believe 97. I mean, good grief. Can you, can you imagine writing books like that? The credibility is lost when your predictions don't come true. And Jesus is putting a lot of credibility on the line. I mean, the guy who streaked in the Super Bowl, I think it was $50,000 he put on himself. Jesus is putting the credibility of the movement, of, of the kingdom, of the Messiahship that he is claiming to hold on the line. It's really important. Even today, I I think about predictions that are being made. What was it? Just a few months ago or a month ago, we were hearing that January 20th, the inauguration of President Biden, that actually 
Joe Biden was gonna be arrested and there was gonna be military action and President Trump was gonna be put back into play. I think those were the predictions of QAnon. And I think now there's another one, March 4th, that no, 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 President Trump is going to be our president. At some point when these predictions don't come to fruition, there is a credibility issue. Matter of fact, the Old Testament, I mean, it, it is clear about making prophecy, about predicting the future. Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy chapter 18, I won't read them to you, but they're fascinating passages that say if, if you're a prophet and you predict the future and it doesn't come true, or if it does come true and people are worshiping other gods because of it, it's the death penalty. Like you're supposed to die if you're a prophet that leads people away from God or if your predictions or if your prophecies don't come true. So today as we read this, Jesus is putting a lot on the line. Credibility and even his life and even his message as the prophet, the messenger, the Messiah of God. Mark chapter 10, let, let me read the entire passage for you and then we'll, we'll work our way through it. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32. It says, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the 12 aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. There it is, he's predicting. I'm gonna tell you what's gonna happen. Verse 33, see, we are going up to Jerusalem the son of man will be handed over to the chief priest and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him and he will rise after three days. There's the prediction, but he keeps going. Verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. It's a big claim. Verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, allow us to sit at your right hand and at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right hand or left, it is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the 10 disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. That means they hear James and John wanting to be at the right hand and the left. And they're like, hey, we want to be a part of the conversation. They're mad. Verse 42, Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." It's a fascinating passage, and I know it may feel like two different stories as you have the prediction of his death and his resurrection, and then you have this argument about who's at his right and his left. But this is actually the third time Jesus has predicted 
his death and resurrection in the gospel of Mark. And all three of them follow a similar pattern. And so today I wanna go back over those passages and I wanna show you the pattern and what we can learn from it. The first one is in Acts or excuse me, Mark chapter eight, verse 31. Mark chapter eight, I'm gonna flip over there and I wanna read it to you, the prediction, because each of them follow this pattern. First, the prediction, then there's confusion, and then there's a contradiction. Mark chapter eight, verse 31 says this, then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the son of man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes be killed and rise after three days. There it is. There's a prediction. He says, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to die. In three days, I'm going to rise again. Let's look at this second one. It's in Mark chapter nine. It's also in verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. So this one adds a little bit of a nuance. This prediction says it's not just going to be handed over, but he's going to be betrayed. Jesus is recognizing Judas is going to betray him. And then finally, let me just read again what we saw in Mark chapter 10 when he says this in verse 33, see, we are going to Jerusalem. The son of man will be handed over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. Jesus is given a little bit more. The Jews are gonna condemn me, and then the Gentiles, I'm gonna be handed over to them. And if we know the story, we know that was Pilate and Herod. And then it says, they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. Clearly, all of this happens. So Jesus Jesus, with each prediction, gives a little bit more. Now, I told you there's a pattern. First, the prediction, and then there's confusion. Let's go back to Mark chapter 8, and let's see where the confusion is. Right after Jesus says he's going to rise, in verse 31 of Mark chapter 8, verse 32 says, he spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter pulls him aside and says, whoa, you can't talk about death. You can't talk about being betrayed. You can't do that. Peter doesn't understand what Jesus is saying, so he rebukes him, and then we know what Jesus says next, right? Get behind me, Satan. Again, confusion in Mark chapter 9, the second time Jesus predicts it. Look at these words in verse 32. But they did not understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. So after the second prediction, after Peter tries to rebuke Jesus, the next time they just decided to be quiet. They didn't want to ask him. They were scared. The last time we said something, we got rebuked and called Satan. This time we're not going to say a word, but they didn't understand it, the text said. Confusion. Finally, the third time he does it, Look at what happens in verse 37. After Jesus gets through saying he's gonna be mocked and spit on and beaten and killed and handed over to the Gentiles, this is what John's and, John and James say. Verse 37, allow us to sit at your right hand and at your left in your glory. Doesn't that sound like confusion to you? 
I mean, I'm trying to understand where are they getting glory from right hand and, and left? Where, where are they getting glory from? I'm gonna be beaten and spit upon and mocked and killed. Like, I, I don't understand where you guys are hearing this. There's clearly confusion. And then finally, there's the third aspect of this. Remember, prediction, confusion, and then there's contradiction. This is where Jesus begins to speak in this paradoxical language. Let's go back to Mark chapter eight. He says this in verse 35, uh, or excuse me, verse 34. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? This doesn't make sense. If you want to gain your life, you have to lose it. And if you lose your life, you gain it and vice versa. It's, it just, it's, it's contradictory. He does the same thing in Mark chapter nine. After the confusion, listen to the words of Jesus. He says this in verse 34. But they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. And sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and a servant of all. There it is again. It's contradictory. First, last. You got to serve people, but we're, we're trying to get to the status. Then verse 36, he said, he took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. Jesus takes this child, which would have been at the lowest possible social status, and says, you, you welcome this lowly, this last person, and you're welcoming me. Clearly, there's contradiction. And then finally, in the, the, fi the third and final prediction of his death and resurrection, Jesus gives one more contradictory statement. He says this in verse 42. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. Prediction, confusion, contradiction. What is Jesus trying to accomplish? And why the confusion? There's just a lot of questions here. So let me see if we can unpack it and, and figure out how this applies to us. I think the gospel of Mark is about two questions. Who and how? The first eight chapters of the gospel of Mark, Jesus is trying to establish himself as who he is. That's what Mark's trying to do. Who is Jesus? This miracle worker, this, this guy who can cast out demons, his, his ability to, to speak in this amazing way. Who is he? Matter of fact, that's exactly what Jesus asked the disciples in Mark chapter eight. He says, who do they say that I am? Elijah, John the Baptist. And then he says, who do you say that I am? Who? And that's when Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting on. You're the guy who restores the kingdom. You're the sent one, the prophet of God. You're that one. 
And I think through the first eight chapters of Mark, that's what he's trying to get us to answer. Who do we say Jesus is? And a few weeks ago, that's exactly what John posed to us. Who do you say that he is? Do you say that he's the savior of the world? Do you say that he is king? Do you say he is Lord? When I think about Jesus Christ and all of his credibility hinging on this prediction, who else could it be? He's saying he's going to die and rise again, and he does it. In a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Easter, and Easter is all about celebrating that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He is who he says he is. That's great news, isn't it? I mean, matter of fact, we could close this thing up, bring out the band, and worship some more because that is what Jesus Christ accomplished. He is who he says he is. He is the Messiah. He is going to rise again. But as we look at this, that's not what the disciples were expecting. That's why the confusion is there. You see, in theological terms, we call this the messianic profile. What were first century Jews expecting? You see, we're 2,000 years removed from the death, burial, and resurrection. We know what happens at the end of the story. We know Jesus is going to return. We've seen all that. And so therefore, we can go back to passages like Isaiah 53 that talk about how a servant is going to suffer. We go back to passages like Psalm 22 where Jesus quotes from the, the cross and we see that clearly these passages were more than just about suffering servants and suffering and David, but they were actually pointing to Jesus. But if you go back and read those passages, they don't say Messiah. Matter of fact, there's not an Old Testament verse in our Bible that says the Messiah is going to suffer and die. I mean, we know that now after his death, burial, and resurrection. We can see it in Isaiah 53. Now, hindsight is 2020. But that's not what it said then. That's not what they were seeing. What they were seeing was something very different. Let, let me read the, the profile that they were looking for. I mean, these are just a few. I could go on and on. Listen to 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God makes a a promise to David. He says this in verse 11. Ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my prophet Israel, or my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. And when your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. What kind of kingdom is it? He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God is looking at David and saying, you're gonna die one day, but don't worry. There's gonna be somebody from your family, from your lineage who is gonna live forever. His throne is gonna live forever. His kingdom's gonna live forever. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for a king who is gonna sit on a throne, who is gonna rule. And what kind of ruling would he do? Listen to these words in Isaiah chapter 11. It says this in verse one. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. 
and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and a fear of the Lord, and his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. Now listen to this. He will strike the land with the scepter from his mouth and he will kill the wicked with the command from his lips. You can read the rest of the chapter, Isaiah 11. It's intense. They were looking for that Messiah. Zechariah 14, I could, I could go on and on about this day of the Lord, this political ruler, Messiah, Savior, King, descendant of David, who was gonna come in and wipe out Rome and wipe out Caesar and Pilate and Herod and was going to establish Israel in its rightful place and rule justly for those who have been oppressed, those who have been treated unfairly. And so when Jesus says, I'm gonna be betrayed and handed over and flogged and rejected, and spit on, and mocked, and killed. This did not fit their messianic profile. They thought something very different. So that's why there's confusion. But I told you, Mark's trying to answer two questions, the who and the how. A couple of weeks ago, John told you that there's a turn happening, and here's the turn. No longer is Mark trying to convince you who Jesus is. He's now trying to convince you how Jesus will operate, how Jesus will rule. Mark chapter 11 is the triumphal entry. And from our standpoint, we're talking about a week and that's it. Jesus is gonna be dead in a week. How is he gonna rule? How is he gonna reign? How is he gonna usher in his kingdom? Well, that's the reason for all the contradictory statements because he's not gonna do it with a crown and a throne and a kingdom and a dominion. And he's not gonna do it with a scepter. He's not gonna do it with the sword. He's not gonna do it on a white horse. He's gonna do it differently. He's gonna do it by taking up a cross and denying himself. He's gonna do it by not becoming first, but becoming last. He's gonna do it not by lording it over, but becoming a servant, a slave for all. Matter of fact, as Mark chapter 10 tells us, he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he's gonna die. How the kingdom will come about is gonna blow their minds. And as I think about it, 2,000 years later, we're still pressed with these questions, aren't we? I mean, who is Jesus? Who is he to you? To me, the most compelling thing that I could ever tell somebody is that Jesus Christ said he was going to die, three days later rise again, and you know what? He did it. I mean, C.S. Lewis is right. Either Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or he is who he says he is. Who do you say Jesus is? I mean, he's got all the credibility in the world. 
he called the shot. He stepped to the plate and pointed over the left field wall and said, that's where I'm going. I'm going to die and I'm going to be mocked and made fun of. But you know what? I am going to come back to life three days later. And I love that he says three days. We're not walking around a grave trying to figure out when's he coming out. He's already come out. He did it in three days. Who is Jesus? He's the Messiah who came back to life, rose again, victory over sin and death. And then we might ask, how? Well, I'll just tell you, I don't think the disciples were the only ones who were gonna struggle with the how. First century Jews weren't the only ones who were gonna struggle with it. I think 2,000 years later, especially us here in America, we struggle with the how. I mean, we wanna be first. We wanna build our kingdoms. We wanna acquire things. We wanna be rich. We wanna be served. We want a life of ease. We want that, right? I mean, the American dream is all about it. The reality is, is that Jesus says that's not how it's gonna work. Matter of fact, he even says to his disciples, not so with you. Not among you will you lord it over. Not among you will you be about glory and power and ambition and gaining. Not about, not, not, not among you will that be us, but rather Servants, the last, slaves, he says, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, not trying to seek greatness, trying to seek service. I don't know about you, but a couple of thousand years later, I'm, I'm still trying to figure that out. It is completely counterintuitive to everything we see. Isn't it? We want our bank accounts larger, our cars shinier, our kids more successful, our retirement more glamorous. We want our status to be improved, our promotions to come in a timely manner. Service, giving up our rights, being last. It's hard, isn't it? The great thing is, is Jesus isn't asking you to do something he wasn't willing to do first himself. He never tells us to take up his cross until after he predicts his own death. Take up your cross and follow me. What a great call, isn't it? Who is Jesus? How is he gonna operate? Those are the two questions of Mark. So here's what I challenge you with. As we move into this final week of Jesus' life as we go through the gospel of Mark. We're, we're moving to Easter. I mean, Easter's right around the corner, April 4th. I want you to begin to think about just how upside down the kingdom really is. These principles really are. Just how counterintuitive it is. As we think about Jesus marching into this city and then crying out Hosanna, not knowing really what they were saying. As Jesus endures the shame, as he is ushering in the kingdom, forgiveness, as he is being the savior of the world with blood, sweat, tears, humiliation, with spit on his face, with a crown of thorns shoved in his head, with a purple robe draped on him, and a sarcastic sign above him that says, King of the Jews. 
He ushers it in in a way that we should follow. Humility, sacrifice, not wanting gain, but wanting to follow the model of our Savior. That's who Jesus is. And that's how Jesus does it. And that's what he asks of us. As we begin to prepare our hearts and look toward Easter, that's what I challenge you with. Who is he? How is he doing it? How are you doing it? Let me pray for us. Father, I uh, could not be more convinced in Jesus Christ and his claims because I know no one else who lived, said he was going to die, predicted that he was going to come back to life in three days and did it. No one else. Man, how amazing is that? And so, Jesus, you are worthy of all of our worship. And in doing all of that, you became low, humble, servant, sacrificial for us. And that's what you call us to be. You want us to do it how you did it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would show us where we need to be last. Pray you'd show us where we need to, to open our hands and let go of this world where we can lose our life to save it, where we can serve others instead of wanting to be served. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are and how you did it. Help us to follow that example. It's in your son's name we pray, Lord. Amen.